Welcome to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. Today my guest once again is Gerald Ashley, a reformed financial markets man and now BS expert with strong interests in change, risk and decision making. Indeed, Gerald has written books on the subject, is a regular media contributor and happily is hitting the live speaking circuit again after too long a gap. That story we know. Today we're talking about our overconnected world and the pressures this brings, pandemic costs, the BS replication crisis and its party tricks, and unsettling science. And of course, we end with Gerald's quickfire round. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my writings and pods on Substack, that's at aloadofbs.substack.com, and hit the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. We pick up today's conversation with another thought on the subject of connectivity. Enjoy the show! Another thought when looking at this business of connectivity is that I think the commercial pressure is always to be more and more connected because in the short term, it's more and more efficient. The long-term health of the network or structure may not be at all good and may be quite fragile and prone to sort of cascading collapses. But we live in a short-term world. We live in a world where CEOs are on quarterly earnings metrics, where a typical CEO in the States is often in post for no more than three or let alone four years. So the horizon for those people is far shorter than the potential risk they may be taking in the long term. They will get away with the dare one say over-efficiency or seemingly good short-term efficiency, but they're risking the long-term health of the overall system. This is a big problem because how do you incentivize people to be less gung-ho? I think that it may come down to politics. I hate to think it would come down to regulation. It may be that we just live in a world where every now and again we have to get used to sudden collapse of some networks. As we speak today, we're having some fun and games in the UK energy market. Ministers are running around talking about having emergency meetings and crisis talks. It's a little bit late for all of that because there's not enough resilience in the system. And I guess that's going to be a big cost to sort it out. On a more micro day-to-day level, I wonder, do you think we have an over-reliance on tools like email or WhatsApp or LinkedIn when we think about connectivity? Do those things matter? Is that an over-reliance or is that just the way things are? Or should we worry about that? I think that's difficult. I mean, I think it's sometimes quite interesting to go back to a world where, remember, what was your day like before you had email? I was a fairly early adopter. I wasn't an early adopter, but I got email in 1995. From memory, it didn't even have my name. It was a CompuServe account number. And so how did people deal with things beforehand? Well, we did less And we did it over a sort of smaller field. So my brother who lives in the States, suddenly we could email one another in time as bandwidth got better. That allowed you to send diagrams and papers and documents and all the rest of it. And now it seems inconceivable that we would go back to the idea of typing up a memo and having it distributed around the office physically by somebody. So we're not going back to that old world, obviously. Some of the new world, does it add very much? I don't know. I mean, I think there seems to be quite a move against email. I think people have kind of got fed up with the 
large amount of sort of pointless email they receive. I think it's Rory Sutherland who's pointed out that if you look at the ratio between emails you send and emails you receive, we actually send a relatively small number, but we're endlessly copied in on things that we probably don't need to be. So we must reach the, you know, the sweet spot of efficiency there. I think it's going to be interesting in this business of people going back to work in offices or whether they're just going to sit at home and work from there. I sense there's a little bit of a swing back against all this virtual office stuff. It suits some people. It doesn't suit others. There are issues about whether it's actually good for people's long-term careers apart from anything else. Maybe online it's a little harder to suck up to the boss. But there are a lot of issues there. So many of these technologies have their place. But I, you know, again, I would hesitate to worship any single one of them. I mean, these technologies loosely have made for a far more globalized world, of course. And you look at the pandemic again, and you look at the supply chain crash provoked by the pandemic, and you see such enormous immediate system fragility, the whole thing can go down quite quickly. It is quite astonishing to think that you can sit at home, go on to Amazon or any other available platform and buy a widget for a very small amount of money that's been made in China and can be delivered to you the next day. There's a very long chain that starts, you know, let's say it's a frying pan, from the iron ore being dug out of the ground, probably in Australia, right the way through to when it arrives on your doorstep. It's a much faster process right the way through the chain. And of course, they're long chains and they are very reliant on nothing going wrong. And as you quite rightly say, as soon as there's a disruptive move, pretty much anywhere in one of these chains, we've got all sorts of problems. I see one of the knock-on effects of the energy problem that we're getting in the UK. This this is causing a problem with overproduction of pig meat. Rather unfortunately to describe, but apparently a lot of pigs, when they're killed, are originally stunned or gassed with CO2. And then I think before they're actually slaughtered. And there's a shortage of that to do with the energy problem. So suddenly now a lot of pig farmers have got pigs they can't send to an abattoir and it's all going to back up. So there are all sorts of unintended consequences. And it illustrates, I think, how we live in an incredibly connected world. And maybe we should actually say, are we overconnected and have some fire breaks in some of these systems. But will we be patient? You know, why should I have to wait if I can have something arrive by Amazon Prime? And why would companies want to invest in making things slower, less efficient, when they've got shareholders breathing down their neck every quarter saying, well, how are your sales? How are your profits? What sort of dividends we're going to get? So there's a tremendous dynamic in favor of connecting everything all the time. But the problem is it comes with a cost, which is we can and we always will, I think, lack resilience. Yeah, it's one of the debates of the of the moment, the extent to which we will revert to past habits pre-pandemic uh, versus having learned some lessons, put some fire breaks in, as you say, and adapt and going back again to Taleb to try and reflect on how the fracture and the stress of the last couple of years will make us stronger and make us more resilient, more robust, not only to future events, but it's, a, it's an opportunity for learning. It's an opportunity to pause, breathe and think about how we can do things better together. 
I would agree with that, but I would say it does come with a cost. Most costs come down to two things or a mixture of them, which is time and money. And so we are saying slowing, slow down on time and spend more money, neither of which is popular in the short term. True. I accept that. Now, we started by talking about your entry point into behavioral science. I want to talk about issues and challenges to the science and its study, what we might call a replication crisis. What I'm trying to say is that much of popular BS theory is taken as gospel, ide fix. So, for example, Kahneman Tversky's late 1970s prospect theory on loss aversion, the idea that losses are twice as powerful psychologically as gain. It talks about our tendency to prefer avoiding losses to acquiring equivalent gains to the extent that we are risk-seeking in the domain of losses and risk-averse when it comes to building on gain. And there are other many well-known cognitive biases that we're familiar with, which are considered to push us into, in inverted commas, irrational decision-making, whether that that's confirmation, anchoring, availability, biases. There are numerous. Now, what I'm not trying to do here is devalue serious academic peer-reviewed research because all these biases clearly have meaningful real-world applications. But I think there is a need in BS to separate popular tropes and anecdotes and ensure that we set all this research in the right context. So my, my question to you is, do you think we need to be a little cautious at times when we talk behavioral science? I think that's exactly right. I think we're all guilty of it. I, I certainly am guilty of what you might call these sort of party tricks examples of behavioural science. There are many wow the crowd for 10 minutes, but maybe on further examination and thought. And again, that famous word, what are the underlying assumptions in some of the tests and practical sort of experiments have done? You know, how valid are the assumptions that have been made? It is a replication crisis because some of the, the most treasured ones are under some threat. Cumulative prospect theory, which you just mentioned, is under a degree of attack from a whole area called ergodicity. But you'll need three or four programs to go through that. It, that's an emerging challenge to this idea of once you've got 10 Ferraris having an 11th one doesn't really matter very much. That kind of feels right at an anecdotal level. And certainly from a sort of my background in trading and finance, it did feel right that losses feel really awful. And all you really want to do is get out of the loss. So you'll take more and more risk. You become more risk seeking when you're in loss. To actually prove that is not particularly straightforward and it is being challenged. There are a number of others. The ones that always slightly bother me are the laundry lists of biases. People now are producing diagrams with like a wheel of biases. You could almost spin the wheel that sometimes have 90 different elements on them. I think there are three or four that are pretty solid. I think you can demonstrate probably in the advertising world and the marketing world how framing is incredibly important. Equally, how you can anchor people's feelings. You know, if you want somebody to pick a particular decision route or scenario, you put two unhealthy or not not uh, attractive scenarios either side of your middle chosen choice. In fact, I think Shell Oil, who pioneered scenario planning with Ari de Goyce in the 1950s and 1960s, made a point of you should never have three scenarios because in general, only in general, but probably in a maximum in a group, people will go for the middle scenario. So make life a little bit more uncomfortable by having four. So you make people jump slightly one side of the fence. So biases, there are too many. I mean, some people say, well, what the hell is rationality? How do you measure rationality? Are you more rational than me or vice versa or against an average cross-section of the population? So I think there is a problem 
problem with this. That said, I do think that there is an important side to behavioral science in that it does go quite a little bit further on, or let's say behavioral economics goes quite a bit further on from classical economics, which in some ways seems completely bonkers to me. Standard microeconomics of supply and demand suggests that when the price go up, goes up, price, uh, demand should fall and more supply should emerge. Or if it doesn't emerge, demand will eventually sort of dry up. Well, that doesn't seem to be what happens in the stock market. People tend to buy because it's already going up, not because it's been falling. And in fact, it's counterintuitive to the, the theory. We should be piling in as share prices fall and we should be looking to get out as we go up. Acres of evidence shows we do the opposite. And in fact, there's a sort of unreliable tip to listeners for trying to make money in the stock market. It's worth remembering that the vast majority of money that is lost in stock markets is lost by people who sell after a crash. So they actually crystallize their losses. They may have to, they may be forced to do so because they've got other commitments, which is unfortunate. So that becomes a liquidity issue. The big rule of if there's a crash is to turn off that stock exchange news feed stop reading a financial press and wait for things to, to bottom out and resettle. And pretty much every crash you can overcome. The mother of all crashes, 1929, unfortunately, you did have a 25-year wait, though you would have had income in the, in the investments in the meantime. So there are things going on from a behavioral point of view that don't make sense in classical economics. It's fascinating, Gerald, yeah. that you mentioned irrationality in, in stock market behavior, that despite that not selling low, in other words, when there's a crash is such a well-trodden cliche in itself. Despite that, history repeats itself every time and many people indeed can't help themselves. No, I mean, you know, people say, oh, I've had enough of stocks and shares and they use the phrase, oh, it shocks and scares. And so I think sometimes people are forced to sell because they may need some of those assets to live off. But if you if you can avoid doing so, my unprofessional advice, which you shouldn't take any notice of, is please try to resist the urge to sell. Now, so what's happening here is, is that behavioral economics, behavioral science is sort of trying to fill in some of the gaps that exist in the thinking of, of classical economics. And I think that's all to the good. There is a more, dare we say, sinister side to behavioral science, which is it's quite paternalistic. And I think governments have been very quick to see, well, can we make the population do this or that in the way we frame or present certain problems or, dare one say, market them to, to the the general public. That can be perfectly reasonable. And of course, this has been an element of what's been going on with the pandemic. But equally misused, it could be a very manipulative tool. I am confident, though, that in a way people can see through it. And this may be a, a weakness in behavioral science. I think not all of us all of the time, but with a little bit of thought, I think we can sense when we're being manipulated or we're only seeing one particular version of events. But it's not going to go away. The genie's out of the bottle. And I'm sure governments of all stripes, from perfectly reasonable to horrific dictatorships, will make use of some of these tools. Yeah, I think you know, good BS is research in motion or it's work in process. We started by talking about Kahneman Tversky's prospect theory, which is one of the most well-known foundational precepts of behavioral science. But actually, I mean, Richard Thaler, for example, has carried out research which picks some holes in it, demonstrating that risk-seeking behavior may 
not actually hold if the risk-taking opportunity doesn't offer a chance to break even. So all I'm saying there is at least that it's pleasing at least when one's seeing actually that these debates, these positions are being regularly challenged. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, there's a there's another guy worth following. I'm going to mispronounce his name, but I think it's Gerd Gigerenza. He's written a number of very interesting books on what we might just term rules of thumb, that somehow, and this may be an evolutionary thing, going back all the way back to the uh, New Caledonian crows, we have sort of innately figured out a way of stumbling through life. One of the things to say is if we're that irrational, how the hell are we still on the planet? So we must be doing in the round some things well enough to keep going. Doesn't mean we're the most efficient superhuman beings or whatever, but in general, we're doing the right thing. But Gigerenza's work is definitely worth reading. I would maybe characterize all of this by saying, actually, we're back to plans and planning. BS is not about a big shiny totem that has got the result for you, which of course is what we want. And you're quite right to say it's really about work in progress. It's about planning. It's about the discourse or the bounce off between various people who are doing research and things come and go. And again, I think one of the disturbing elements about the pandemic is the shouting around about science, or as politicians like to call it, the science. Anybody who spent any time looking at the history of science, and there's some good books on that, will see that it is a constant battle. There aren't things that that are pretty settled, as we know. But there are a lot of things that are subject to a lot of revision and dispute, and that's a good thing. But of course, we don't like that because I want a solution. Give me the certainty. What do you mean new research shows something different? That's that's not a welcome answer. So if I was looking for a phrase to describe the theme of this talk today, it's about just loosen up a bit. We just have to accept we can't know everything. We can't solve everything. Some things are inherently insoluble. And we just got to get on with it and sort of feel our way forward without risking things too much. So it's sort of, you know, a little of everything is better than trying to be massively good at one thing. Well, you could call it regarding the pandemic. We we want white coat certainty, if that makes sense, from, yeah. our, from our scientists. Yeah, no, I think that's quite a nice thing. And again, it, it appeals, doesn't it? Right, let's get the boffins in. Let's get the top man in who knows all this stuff. Give me the answer. And it's very uncomfortable when you ask three of them and you get four answers. And in fact, there may not be a particular answer. And in a way, what we're doing when we do that is we're trying to outsource our judgment. And I don't think you can do that. I think at the end of the day, we have our own risk preferences and our, our own fears or beliefs or however sensible or wacko they may be. But we have to take responsibility. Science and research, I don't think, works with the definite article, as in the science. I think this was this government imposition to try and create a full sense of certainty and security. I think it's rather a bizarre phrase. As you say, it, it sets up this idea of some fantastic totem that we can consult and worship before and will deliver all we need, which, of course, is exactly the stocking trade of politicians. This is what politicians do. They stand up and say, you've got a problem, we'll solve it. And they frequently don't. They often make things worse. But it, it's a classic political phrase. I don't think it's a phrase that most scientists feel remotely comfortable with, to be honest. No, exactly. I want to just go back to a point you made 
a moment ago about the use and misuse of biases, it is, of course, important to stress that some biases have really important evolutionary value. For example, herding bias, or you might call it in, in, in the financial world, you might refer to it as the bandwagon effect. But in evolutionary cool. terms, we observe what works and what fails, and we make informed decisions based on that. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, here, here is another conundrum. What may be good for the group may not be good for the individual. It may make sense for us all to do X, but that doesn't mean that a certain number of people aren't going to fall by the wayside or come unstuck as a result. And evolution doesn't worry about the individual. All it wants to do is push forward all the time. We're in that mindset or we're in that setup. As I said earlier, we kind of stumble forward all the time, but it is pushing forward all the time. Absolutely. Let's take a breath there, Gerald, and switch gears before we conclude. I'd like to run the quick fire round with you, if that's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did I reference this at the beginning? I should have done if I hadn't, so I'm putting you on the spot somewhat. Lovely. Okay. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, Lord, I don't know. I've had surprise gifts in the past. I think we're all susceptible to a little bit of praise. And as I say, getting a gift when it was unexpected and certainly not looked for. I can't think of one particular individual example, though. I'm conscious that when I start quick fire with the idea of lightening the tone and uh, having some quick questions, asking questions like the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you is not the easiest thing to answer spontaneously. But <laughs> something, something else may percolate through, but that's great. Let's go to the next one. What What's your most powerful memory? Uh, my most powerful memory, I would say, I think the first time I went abroad, I went on a school trip at the age of, I think it was nine, to Norway. And I was struck by how Norway seemed different other than just mountains and fields. But it was just foreign and different and just not like home. And so that was a very strong memory. Exciting. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. I don't think I have anything particularly interesting to say. Along with a lot of people in teenagers in the 1970s, for about a year, I thought I would really want a career in rock music. I was unfortunate in timing. We were particularly dreadful, but we were dreadful in 1975, as if we were dreadful in 1976, we could have been a huge punk rock band, but it didn't happen. What happened in 1975 to prevent you becoming a huge rock band? I decided to uh, do my A-levels and just carry on. Plus, nobody wanted anybody who was really rubbish. <laughs> Did your band have a name? Uh, no, a variety of ones that we could never agree on, so we weren't exactly marketing geniuses either. Right. Which book do you gift most regularly? I wouldn't say there's a specific one, but I like books on history. So I tend to recommend people read histories of things, particularly areas that they themselves have not come across. So I think social history is very interesting. I think as a child, you tend to think about kings and queens and governments and battles and things. But as you get older, you realize that social history is actually fascinating. So any good social histories of the Victorian era or indeed the previous century, I think are well worth it. If we were in Desert Island Discs territory, the book I would take with me would be Samuel Pepys's diary. Because? it's A, it's very funny. It's very detailed. Uh, is very human and it also shows that in many ways life's not a huge amount different from the 1660s and 1670s. There's certainly more corruption or certainly more open corruption and there's certainly a lot of glad handing and getting on in the world by knowing the right people. But he's remarkably frank. It's, it's an unusual document and in, he sort of wrote it and thought that nobody would ever read it. So sometimes it's disarmingly frank.
fine. Okay, well, continuing the theme of desert islands, what's your desert island music? And you can interpret that question in any way. You don't have to list eight tracks, but you can list one track, an album, artists, uh, any mix you like. Very easy for me is Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones, and it comes with the added bonus of being a double LP, so plenty of different tracks. Fantastic. And last but not least, winding down away from work, tell me a little about your hobbies. Uh, now, this is, I think, a bit of a problem because I'm not a I'm not a huge hobby person. I'm not down in the garden shed building a catamaran or whatever people get up to. I'm really a very avid reader. I would say my main interest is reading, to be honest. What have you got on the go at the moment? Currently, I'm reading a book which is actually quite illustrative for, for this talk today, actually. It's a book called Banana Skins, and it's the secrets of the slip-ups and screw-ups that brought the famous down to earth. So if you want to see where people have come unstuck, I'm not certain it's in print. Uh, rather interestingly, the forwards by Jonathan Aitken, who um, I think fell over a few banana skins himself. But I'm sure you can get it as a secondhand on the net somewhere. As I say, it's called The Little Book of Banana Skins. Well, that's a lovely note to conclude on, Gerald. So with that, let me thank you so much for joining me today. The tech has worked, so let's give thanks for that. But moreover, we've covered a lot of ground. We've given listeners real food for thought. And as always with you, it's been so entertaining and instructive. So thank you. That'd be my pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. If you like this episode, do leave me a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you listen on. Share it on Twitter and tell a friend you love me. Next week, I'm interviewing Dr. Jesse Bering on the science of the afterlife and other evolutionary taboos. So until next time.